Welcome to the Trial of the Chicago 7 podcast. In 1968, America was a nation in turmoil. The war in Vietnam raged on, claiming a thousand American lives each month. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis on April 4th. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy was shot and killed in Los Angeles. In late August, anti-war demonstrators gathered in Chicago to protest outside the Democratic National Convention, and violent clashes with the police and National Guard ensued. The organizers of those protests, along with Bobby Seale, the chairman of the Black Panther Party, were indicted for conspiracy to cross state lines to incite a riot. And so began one of the most bizarre and momentous trials in American history. I'm John Carroll Lynch, and I play Dave Dellinger, one of the defendants in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7. In this podcast series, you'll be hearing about why Aaron felt compelled to make this film, the startling parallels between the events of 1968 and the trial, and what's happening in America today, and you'll hear from the actors and creative minds that realized the world of the film. Here is your host and narrator, Krista Smith. I hope you've enjoyed the series so far. In this episode, I'm thrilled to welcome back writer-director Aaron Sorkin. We're going to be talking about the journey of his career, the themes he's explored, and the stories he's been drawn to. His extraordinary talent for dialogue, the enormous influence that legendary screenwriter William Goldman had on him, he'll explain why he thinks of a few good men the same way he thinks about his high school yearbook picture. And you'll hear a little bit more about the trial of the Chicago 7 and why he loves writing for the courtroom. But to start, we're going back to the beginning of the story, to that moment when Aaron first sat down at a typewriter, alone in New York City, and embarked on a path that would lead him to become one of Hollywood's most celebrated storytellers. I want to talk to you a little bit about that moment for you when you realized that this was the way to go for Aaron. I mean, I know you originally wanted to be an actor. Uh, those were your initial pursuits. But talk to me about that moment when you finally put a piece of paper in that typewriter and was like, this is it. As it happens, in, in my case, uh, there was a specific moment. Um, I think m- most writers I know, if you ask them that question, they would say, I, I don't know if there was a moment. It was a, uh, There was an exact Friday night. Uh, when it happened. Uh, yes, growing up, when I was a, a little kid, uh, uh, I, I thought I was going to be an actor. I really wanted to be. I, I was in all the school plays. Uh, and then I went to college uh, to study theater. I got a BFA in a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in musical theater uh, from Syracuse University. So I didn't just want to be an actor. I wanted to sing and dance, too. Uh, and after graduation, uh, I came to New York and I was living in my ex-girlfriend's studio apartment. And I don't mean that she's my ex-girlfriend now. I mean, she was my ex-girlfriend then, um, who, was, who had just started dating my best friend. <laughs> but when you move to New York to become a writer, you're really not choosy about food and shelter, you know. Uh, uh, so for $250 a month, uh, I got to pull a futon out of her closet and, uh, and sleep on the floor. This particular... There was a particular Friday night uh, when a friend of mine from high school who had just moved to New York, who was trying to make his way as a journalist, uh, ha- 
had with him his grandfather's this is story will come home soon. Uh, he had with him his grandfather's semi-automatic typewriter. Uh, that's a typewriter with electric keys and a manual return. And he was going out of the town for the weekend with his girlfriend, and he asked me, he didn't want to schlep it with him, so he asked me if I would uh, just hang on to this typewriter for him for the weekend. So it was Friday night. My, my roommate, my ex-girlfriend roommate, was out of town for the weekend. I didn't have $3 uh, in my pocket. It was one of those Friday nights in New York where it just kind of feels like everybody has been invited to a party you haven't been invited to. There's just nobody around. I think it was probably raining outside. And for some reason, nothing in the apartment was working. The TV wasn't working. The stereo wasn't working. The only thing, the only possible source of entertainment in this apartment was that typewriter if I stuck a piece of paper in it. Um, and I did. And for the first time in my life, started writing for pleasure instead of a chore to be gotten through for a school assignment. And for the first time in my life, started writing dialogue. Um, and it was because one of my many survival jobs at the time, and uh, I, I did anything that paid minimum wage. I mostly bartended in Broadway theaters, but I also dressed up as a moose and passed out leaflets. I worked at the half price tickets booth uh, in Times Square. Uh, I drove a limousine. Um, but what I also did was uh, act with a, children, a touring children's theater company uh, that would go down south in a van and a station wagon uh, and do little five-person productions of Greensleeves and The Wizard of Oz. Um, and when I say go down south, I don't mean, you know, we'd play Atlanta. I, I mean, we'd play Jasper, Alabama, um, at, with shows at 10 a.m., noon, and 2 p.m. And anyway, when I stuck the piece of paper uh, uh, in the typewriter, I was thinking about a scene that had occurred a week earlier in a Super 8 motel room with the, this children's theater uh, group late at night when we were playing poker. I stuck the piece of paper in it, and I just started writing dialogue. And uh, I ended up staying up all night uh, uh, writing it. And I, I feel like that night never ended, like I'm still uh, in that night. Uh, in the morning, uh, I called a couple of friends, and I asked them to come over, uh, and would these, they read these pages out loud for me. Um, and I, I, I couldn't afford money for Kinko's. There was just... The, the paper that had come out of the typewriter uh, and they passed it back and forth. And my two friends were really encouraging. And if they hadn't been, I probably never would have written anything after that night. Uh, but they were. Uh, so, so I started writing, but I didn't, I, I had wanted to be an actor for so long. It was impossible to change my identity overnight uh, and just say, I'm a playwright now, which is, by the way, I was the idea of writing movies and TV shows was, nowhere near uh, uh, my mind. Um, so over the next year, uh, uh, I was still thinking I was an actor, but I, but I was, I was writing and I wrote a one act play um, uh, and submitted it to a one act play festival. And, uh, and it was accepted. Uh, and it was a one act play festival that, that does very good productions uh, of good actors, good directors. Uh, and, uh, I cast myself in my play opposite Nathan Lane. And uh, I was on stage one night doing the play, 
And with my playwright's eyes, I just was watching Nathan saying, this guy is great. Wouldn't it be great if all the actors in my play uh, were as good as Nathan? That was the last time I acted. (laughs) Did anything ever happen with the original thing you wrote that Friday night? Did you turn that into anything? Well, what happened with it um, uh, was a lawsuit, uh, actually. A producer came along and optioned the play uh, for Broadway. And then another producer came along and claimed that they had the right to option it and not the original producer. Uh, And the thing got hung up. And you can imagine uh, I'm like facing an opportunity. Are you you kidding me? To have a Broadway production uh, of this play and it's not going to happen because there's a lawsuit. Uh, It was incredible to me. But looking back, I'm very grateful that that happened because that play was no good. Uh, right. Oh, you could say that now, years later, but I imagine at the time it was no, just... No, I promise you, it was every playwright's first play. Um, uh, it was, and uh, it, uh, I, I would say that it's in my drawer, but it's not, I won't even let it in my drawer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you are a master at stories about American ideals and institutions and our ambitions, What's the quality of an idea or a character that gets you hooked? Like, how do you know when you have it? What I'm looking for, kind of worship at the altar of intention and obstacle. Somebody wants something, something standing in their way of getting it. They want the money. They want the girl. They want to get to Philadelphia. It doesn't matter, but they they want it. It's even better if they need it. And the obstacle has to be formidable. And the tactics that your protagonist uh, uses to overcome that obstacle, whether they succeed or not, uh, that's what's going to, in other words, don't tell the audience who a character is. Show the audience what a character wants. Where I'll really get hooked is if a character has to sacrifice risk something like popularity um, if they're uh, if they're a president uh, has to risk something like uh, uh, that you know they're standing in the community uh, if they're Atticus Finch in in to kill a mockingbird has to risk something to do the right thing uh, I, I I enjoy writing about that dramas obviously it's conflict but oftentimes in the things that I write, uh, it, the conflict is ideas uh, rather than trying to rob a bank. Uh, although I would love to write a bank heist movie. Uh, they look so fun to me. Okay, so let's talk about your dialogue, right? It made so much sense to me when I realized that you're a musical person, Like you spent your childhood going to Broadway musicals because I was thinking about some of those monologues and what would that look like if that was actually set to music? Right. Because it also is known that you are, uh, I don't, I don't want to say stickler, but basically you want your words spoken as how they are written. You can say stickler. (laughs) I do. Um, uh, uh, that, that doesn't mean that I'm unwilling uh, uh, in during rehearsal, uh, say, to uh, hear you out um, if you're 
telling me that you're just having trouble getting this line out of your mouth or this transition is, is hard for you, uh, I'm, I'm open to hearing that. I, I do rewrite. Uh, but but there's no improvisation or, or, or ad-libbing or playing fast and loose or anything. Uh, yes, I uh, uh, look, I love dialogue. My, uh, uh, as you said, I've, I've been taken to musicals starting from uh, when I was very young, but also plays. Um, and oftentimes plays that I was either too young or too dumb to understand, like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf when I was nine years old, that kind of thing. Uh, so I didn't really, oftentimes I didn't really understand what was going on on stage, but I loved the sound of dialogue. It sounded like music to me. What a line of dialogue sounds like is as important to me as what it means. There are plenty of times on the set, on the set of anything, whether it's the West Wing or Chicago 7, uh, when after a take, the actor would go to the script supervisor and say, uh, you know, I, I said a two-syllable word instead of a one-syllable word, uh, and uh, I, I got it wrong. The rhythm doesn't work uh, with, with a two-syllable word. They understand the music of it. Mm-hmm. You know, dialogue is the most personal part uh, of writing. One of the things I really enjoy is teaching um, I'll, I'll bop around to schools uh, and teach undergrads or grad students to do a master class. I, I really like doing that. And, um, and I'll tell them that there is a part of writing that can be taught uh, and can be learned. Uh, there really is. Uh, and then there's a part of writing that can't. Uh, and that part is generally what we mean when we talk about talent. Uh, you know, talent is an amorphous thing. We, we don't exactly know what it is, but I, I think it's the part of writing that can't be taught. Uh, and, uh, and so dialogue is very personal. Once I, once I have the intention and obstacle, once I know the shape uh, uh, of the first scene, what needs to be accomplished uh, in the first scene, um, once I've done all the pacing and climbing the walls and driving around in my car, listening to the music I listened to in high school, uh, uh, and I'm able to sit down uh, and write fade in, uh, then it, it, it goes very fast. If you have any talent at all, you want to just unleash it uh, at that moment. You know, if you watch a good musician, it's been years since they've thought about the notes or the fingering. Um, they're playing now. Uh, they know the box G major uh, on the cello. Uh, uh, and, and, and they're playing it now. It's coming from a different part of them. And, uh, uh, and, and when you sit down to write, you should know the notes already and, and just let your talent take over. With all your success, and obviously you've had a, a ton, what still makes you vulnerable? Um, my, uh, a, a man who had a tremendous influence, uh, over me and my writing and my career uh, is William Goldman, uh, who passed away uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, Bill Goldman is a two-time Oscar winner for All the President's Men and for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He wrote The Princess Bride. Uh, he wrote a, a ton of movies that she loved. And, uh, he, he's considered the even now posthumously is considered the, the, the dean of American screenwriters. And after I wrote the play, A Few Good Men, it hadn't 
gone into rehearsal yet, but the script was kind of being passed around and, uh, and people were reading it. And, and Bill Golden read it uh, and called me. And um, he said that he felt he could turn me from my playwright into a playwright screenwriter, um, at, which he did and he didn't. Um, I, I'm, uh, yes, he taught me everything I know and a small fraction of what he knows. Um, but I'm still not sure I'm a screenwriter. I think I'm a playwright kind of faking his way through uh, uh, movies and television. I was at his apartment uh, uh, one time. So he lived at the Carlisle Hotel. He, was, he had just finished uh, a draft of Misery uh, and had just sent it in and was very nervous about it, and he had no ideas for the next thing, and he was just talking about how this is the time he's going to get found out, that he's a fraud and everything, and he's saying this, and not six feet away from him are two Academy Awards. Uh, and I just thought, if Bill Goldman is feeling like this now, at this point in his career, what possible hope is there for any of us? What hope is there for me? So you asked me, what makes me still feel vulnerable? I don't feel one inch less vulnerable <laughs> than I did um, uh, the morning I asked my two friends to come over and read the pages that I wrote in the typewriter. <laughs> Not even a little bit. It's funny how that never leaves. I, I found that all the incredibly talented people I've been around in my career, it it is something that is true for every single one of them. Yeah. Uh, it, it is. And I don't know, maybe you need that as a motivator. I feel like I could be plenty motivated without it. I, I, I wouldn't mind to, to not feel the anxiety. Uh, but, but again, you know, when I think about it, it's, you should feel anxiety. It's, it's a big deal. You made a big movie. You're asking people to come see it. Uh, uh, you know, you, you're spending 90 minutes, uh, on me. Uh, you know, it, it should be hard enough and it should be important enough that it makes you nervous. Mm -hmm. Well, when you talk about uh, William Goldman and his influence on you, one of the things that, uh, and I think you wrote this and I read it about how he always had to have a secret. There was some oh, secret yeah. that he was working with, which I loved. And obviously as a kid, I watched Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, I mean, too many times <laughs> to yeah. count, right? And that secret for him was learning that, Sundance couldn't swim, right? Exactly right. Uh, uh, he taught, Bill taught me about having a secret. Uh, and, you know, Bill had done all his Butch and Sundance uh, research at a library, uh, which is how you did it uh, back then. And when he found out that the Sundance kid couldn't swim, he knew he had it. Um, uh, and it's, it's, you, I, I know what he's talking about. You get very excited when you're writing. I just have to get them to the cliff. I just have to get them to the cliff. If I can just get them to the cliff, this is really going to pay off. Um, and so, uh, uh, you look for those moments. And what was that for you in the trial of the Chicago seven? Well, there were, uh, a, a number of them, the, uh, uh, binding and gagging Bobby, um, uh, uh, our guys, the guys getting you know pushed through a plate glass window uh, uh, at the Haymarket. Uh, uh, the the um, uh, you know the judge not allowing any of Michael Keaton's testimony, not allowing, allowing the jury to hear it. 
that there were going to be moments like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, the biggest one by far, which, by the way, oh, gee, I, I always forget to credit him for this. This is a huge thing. Um, and sorry for my voice going hypersonic there, but this is a huge thing that I never would have known without Hayden telling me. Um, it, it's not in a single book. It's nowhere in the trial transcript. Uh, about um, if our blood is going to flow, let it flow all over the city. Uh, uh, that what Hayden said is, is if blood is going to flow, let it flow all over the city, which sounded like Hayden was, uh, it sounded like an exhortation to the crowd uh, to go and start beating up police officers um, uh, uh, and, and let the streets run red when, what, when he accidentally left out a word, the word our, uh, uh, what, that what he meant was, is look, if the police are going to beat us up, people should see this. Uh, uh, go out in the street and, and show everybody the blood. Uh, so I never would have known that without Hayden. That's a huge secret, uh, a huge third act thing to happen. Um, and it's the moment, uh, it's the moment that Tom and Abby come toward each other. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that, it's the mutual respect moment. Where they kind it's of a mutual see each respect other. moment because you can see in that when 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 Abby says, um, uh, uh, you know, he to, to Consular, uh, uh, he does that. Um, uh, he leaves out, uh, uh, you know, these adverbs of uh, possessive adverbs and uh, and things like that. He did it all through his portion of the Port Huron statement, and Tom realizes that Abby read the Port Huron statement, uh, and he's really touched by that. And Abby says, "I've read everything you've published. You're a talented guy." Um, and, uh, and then of course on the stand when Abby says, uh, I think Tom Hayden's a badass of an American patriot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So your dad was a lawyer, your sister's a lawyer, your brother was a lawyer and Aaron Sorkin loves a courtroom scene. <laughs> okay, mom. Um, <laughs> oh, I thought you were going <laughs> to. I thought I was about to be scolded for not going to law school. Well, I'm sure that came up, but I will not bring it up. In a Jewish family? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. No, you've got it all wrong. (laughs) So A Few Good Men, which you wrote as a play, which, I mean, again, the stuff of legend. It was already optioned as a movie before it even, you know, the curtain even went up on the play, right? Yeah. It's the courtroom drama. I... Listen, obviously, uh, I have love for a few good men. My my experience doing the play, uh, uh, having you know, for someone like me, having a play on Broadway, uh, you just can't imagine what what that feels like, what that's like. Um, and the people in the play uh, all, all became very close friends of mine, and still are today. And the experience of doing the movie. Um, doing any movie, uh, but this was a movie with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, and uh, Rob Reiner was a very hot director, and Demi Moore, Kevin Bacon, Kiefer Sutherland, J.T. JT Walsh, um, uh, was extraordinary. But I, I have, um, anytime I've been approached about a revival of the play, uh, on Broadway or some kind of major production of play, I've, I've declined. And it's because I look at A Few Good Men kind of the way I look at my high school yearbook picture. Uh, 
it was better than that play that got saved by a lawsuit. Uh, uh, the, the, you know, the play that I won't even allow in my drawer. Better than that, for sure. Uh, this young playwright was showing promise. But I would give anything to have a few good men back and write it over again. Hmm. Writers get better when they get older, like symphony conductors, not like athletes. We get better as we get older, and I would just love to have that one back. <laughs> That's interesting because it's such a seminal moment in your career with people still reciting those lines. You can't handle the truth. No, I, I know. And um, uh, believe me, in, at 2 a.m. when I was writing that scene and that line, I never imagined that it would uh, you know, be, become a, something that people say. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Nicholson had a lot to do with that. Uh but yes, like I said, I have I have love for the memory, and I, I you know have the poster proudly framed on my wall. Uh, but uh, just like I loved high school, uh, I just uh, wouldn't want people to see my high school yearbook picture. And you still have a courtroom. What do you say? Those four walls. You like the walls, right? I love those four walls. Um, you know, uh, watch as I compare myself an adorable animal. Uh, they say that when you bring home a new puppy, that you should get a crate that's just big enough for the puppy to be able to turn around in, but no bigger because they really like the comfort uh, of that tight space of those four walls. And I'm the same way. Uh, that, that's why practically everything I write uh, takes place in is people talking in offices. Uh, uh, if it can be a courtroom, that's best because the intention and the obstacle are clear. The audience, the, this jury is a stand-in for the audience. They know as little as the audience does. The stakes are so high. There's a scoreboard. I love being in a courtroom. Being outside in a giant park and staging a riot, that's terrifying. <laughs> Not even staging it, writing it. Just writing it. Writing the three letters E-X-T, period, which means exterior. I start to shake. <laughs> you know, it's people forget, like you were, what was it, 26 when you first came to Hollywood? Yeah. That's incredible. Um, yeah, I, I, I was really lucky uh, that, uh, that I was able to get such an early start. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. But uh, what, I, what I didn't get was much of an apprenticeship. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, I, like in television... Uh, you would ordinarily uh, come up as a staff writer and then a story editor, and, and you'd move up and up the ranks. Uh, and the only job I've ever had in television is uh, a creator and showrunner. Uh, so I wouldn't have traded the way things happened in my life uh, for anything. But uh, uh, there's a small downside, which is that I, I didn't have uh, that apprenticeship. Well, I, I do love that you love teaching. And I want to know, how do you feel, how does it feel to know, to see your work, your, the, the walk and talks, you seeing these, these kids that have such admiration for that and that they want to learn from you? How, how does that make you feel? I can't describe how it makes me feel. It's, it's an extraordinary privilege. Uh, either when somebody tells me that uh, I had some kind of influence over uh, they're wanting to be a writer. Uh, or sometimes 
someone who works in public service, someone who works in government, uh, uh, will tell me that you know the West Wing made them a poli sci major, and uh, uh, and this is what they're doing now. Um, it's uh, it's an extraordinary privilege to be able to feel that way, and you're reminded <clears throat> that the most powerful delivery system ever invented for an idea is a story. The Hollywood you entered is so different than the Hollywood we're living now. Yeah, things are different now, but I, I, I would imagine uh, that for a, a new writer coming up, I would imagine things are better simply because there are so many more opportunities, Right. Um, uh, when I started writing in television, there were three and a half networks, uh, or Fox wasn't even a real, uh, uh, network, but that's it. Um, HBO wasn't something you wanted to write for. Uh, uh, Gary Shandling was doing some kind of experiment over there, uh, with the show that turned out to be, you know, one of the greatest shows ever on TV. Um, so there are all of these opportunities in uh, uh, in television and in film. Uh, if you're writing for TV, you, you don't have to get a third of the share of the TV audience. Your writing can be more personal. Uh, it can be more special. Uh, it, it no longer has to be about alienating the fewest people possible, bothering the fewest people possible. Uh, because of all the uh, platforms to, to put your work on. Um, uh, and the, the same thing in features. Yes, it's, it's not good uh, that theatrical features have now kind of become either it's a big-budget superhero movie or it's an art film, uh, that, that there's, there's nothing in between. And looking back, I'm, I'm not sure, other than A Few Good Men, uh, because of its cast, I'm not sure that any other movie I wrote uh, would have been made or made the way it was made. I'm not even sure The Social Network uh, uh, would have been a theatrical release. Maybe. Uh, uh, I don't know. Well, I have a last question for you. Okay. So you've had... You know, the movies that you've written about, so many real life people, whether like we're talking obviously about this film right now or Molly's Game, Steve Jobs, Social Network, Charlie Wilson's War, you know, and then let's go to Few Good Men, West Wing. You get audiences thinking about really important, critical stuff. It's a great compliment. Uh, uh, it really is. I think um, I think it probably... Uh, all goes back to my family's dinner table uh, when I was growing up. Um, as you were kind enough to point out, uh, I, I have many lawyers in my family, and I'm the disappointment. Uh, uh, but what was great was uh, at, at my family's dinner table, uh, hearing these, first of all, <laughs> in, in my family, anybody who used one word when they could have used 10 just wasn't trying hard enough. So that's where that comes from. Um, but uh, there would be these great devil's advocate uh, arguments uh, where, uh, you know, among the lawyers, uh, uh, where it was, okay, but have you looked at it this way? 
Um, and I always loved the sound of the have you looked at it this way uh, uh, part of it. Uh, I, I always found that interesting. So uh, I, I guess I'm trying to imitate the sound of my family's dinner table growing up is what it comes down to. It's great to talk to you. And I love that you feel just as vulnerable as the rest of us uh, out there in the world uh, without as much talent. <laughs> no, I, I promise you I do. And thanks so much for your kind words. I do appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. That concludes our six-part series. But do check back for a special bonus episode. The Trial of the Chicago 7 is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you've been listening. Thank you for joining us.